ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. I don't consider myself a very outdoorsy person. Like, I would never choose to go on a hike. I'd tag along if I must. I don't really go camping. I'm very much a city girl. But even I love the feeling of getting out of the city from time to time and getting into nature. Because there's something about nature that just calms the nerves, doesn't it? I felt like nature had sort of soothed soothed those bits that were hurting or a little bit uncomfortable. I'm a saltwater person, so being in the salt water is the thing that really kind of like recalibrates me. That and also just being within nature, looking around and seeing all the different native plants and knowing what I can use them for. There's also research to back up what we know instinctively, that nature can make us feel good. Our research shows that if you're living closer to green space and with a lot of tree canopies, we're talking about 30% or more, that will help you to reduce the risk of developing depression, anxiety, and also even help reduce loneliness. But a huge number of us are missing out on these benefits. One third of the Australian haven't even spent two hours awake in nature, which, let me think, wow. Not even two hours a week. That is incredible. This is All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Today, producer Rose Kerr dives deeper into the benefits of being outdoors and the barriers keeping people from connecting to nature. On a very cold but thankfully sunny day, I went to the park to meet Belinda McCauley. When I arrived here, I was immediately drawn to the sunny spot. I take a moment to ground, so just feeling the earth beneath my feet, and I like to kind of uh, look up to the sky. And Belinda loves spending time in nature. And just take a couple of breaths. And if I could say there's a place that feels most like home, it's the southwest of Western Australia. That's uh, where I grew up and where I have some really uh, fond memories, and I guess some first memories of my sort of deep connection to nature. Yeah, can you tell me a bit about that first connection? Yeah, well, I grew up on a farm as a kid and I used to go out to the forest with mum and dad uh, collecting wood for our wood fire and quite often we'd take a picnic. It was during these times, and I was a teenager, that I really felt this, I don't know, it's hard to describe, but it, it was just like a peacefulness and it was certainly felt for me after I'd been in the forest and sort of going home I just felt so much more softened and uh, I felt like nature had sort of soothed soothed those bits that were hurting or a little bit uncomfortable. In her 20s as life got busier with travel work and study Belinda's connection to nature slowly disappeared. I probably lost my way a bit then I, I sort of just got a job and you know life kind of took over. Then Belinda would receive news that uprooted her life. So uh, my niece was diagnosed with a a rare cancer. She was, I think, 15 at her diagnosis. And my family are very close. And I guess I I took on a support role to help my sister through that, you know, first initial period of of treatment. But I was just, uh, I was a wreck. Like, I didn't actually sort of know how to deal with my feelings and my emotions. I was really angry. 
it, it, it just impacted on every aspect of my life. It was impacting on my relationships with my family, that yeah. the very people that I felt like uh, I needed to support. And it was, that was probably the catalyst for me to, to go, well, uh, you know, if, if I'm going to play a support role in, you know, helping my family along this journey, I really need to get my shit together. So I suppose it was a bit of a kick up the bum. And <laughs> yeah, I, I, I went for help. Glinda worked with a therapist who introduced her to mindfulness and meditation. This mindfulness meditation is, wow, like it was transformational for me. And there was a really pivotal moment, I would say. Uh, my, my niece went on to have a secondary cancer and then she was diagnosed as terminal. And I remember the last the last sort of months or weeks and I was with my family and I'd returned to the house and I was sitting outside drip drying and I just had this moment where I had really sort of tuned into this sense of peace within me and I realised that even though there was all this chaos unfolding around me and there was grief and there was soon to be, uh, you know, death, I... I actually felt this sense of peace and mm. calm within me and I believe that's what mindfulness meditation gave me. Combining mindfulness with a rediscovered love of nature was a game changer for Belinda's mental health. She's so passionate about the effects it's had on her life that she started a business running outdoor group mindfulness sessions called Mindful in Nature. It was through this practice of mindfulness and this remembering of what it was like to be connected with nature and, and feel in relationship with and have this reciprocal kind of relationship with nature that really kind of pulled me back and that was the moment. Belinda's not alone in finding nature restorative. Researchers have been investigating the impact of green spaces on nature and our well-being, and it's clear that nature makes us feel better. From our research, um, also others in the world, uh, we find nature have a lot of positive impact on our health, not only physically, but also mentally. Dr. Xiaoqi Feng is a professor of urban health and environment. She's also the founding co-director of the Power Lab. That's the Population, Wellbeing and Environment Research Lab. Our research shows that if you live in closer to green space uh, and with a lot of tree canopies, we're talking about 30% or more, that will help you to reduce the risk of developing depression, anxiety, also even help reduce loneliness. And the physical health, I think, um, Maybe it's easier to um, mm -hmm. understand that you probably can go into walking, jogging or running around in the local park. Um, so which is good for our physical health, it's good for our heart. But being in the park, in the green space, is also help us to socially connect. When we're at the park, we experience social connection just by being around other people. So that's good for reducing loneliness. Being outdoors also restores us. We have those days you feel exhausted, tired, maybe a bit negative emotion, but being the nature walk about 20 minutes or more. When I come out, I felt like my mind completely refreshed and I think, oh, wow, that was not a big deal. I didn't necessarily talk to anyone. 
but just seeing the live nature and the being in it, and it's refreshed my mind, which help us to restore. Uh, which I actually published a, a paper with many researchers in the world. And restoration is one of the pathways that we investigated that could link green space and health. Researchers like Xiao are looking for ways to get people into nature so they can actually feel these benefits. One of these potential ways is through nature prescriptions. It's a written recommendation to spend more time in nature by a GP or another health professionals. So this might involve referrals to uh, group-based activities in nature, yeah, and such as outdoor yoga class or forest bathing or community gardening work, which happen in many uh, communities. There is increasing use nature prescription mm. in many countries uh, like Canada and the UK, but there's start just getting started in Australia, including uh, my research team. Uh, we are currently recruiting uh, participants to join our new trial, which we call Panda, uh, physical activity in nature for people with metabolic diseases at age over uh, 45 and over. What we would like to know is that whether spending time in nature, have nature prescriptions by a health professional, uh, could increase people's physical activity level, and whether this could help um, people with cardiometabolic diseases uh, better manage their health condition just by simply in nature. If you're someone who loves being outdoors, you might be thinking, why is a prescription really necessary? Well, there seems to be a group of people who aren't drawn to nature in the first place. So the Canadian GPs, they recommend that we need to spend at least two hours awake in nature. And that is based on a study which published in UK. They find that spend at least two hours awake is good for our health. However, we don't know whether this is the case in Australia. But what surprised me is that during the pandemic, me and Professor Thomas Estelbert from University of Wollongong and a team, we conducted a national survey in Australia. Um, but this is time what happened is that we are still kind of um, in pandemic but we're not stay locked down, stay at home with a 5km restriction. And also most of us still work from home. And you would expect two hours awake in nature, no brainer. Yeah. But one third of Australians did not achieve that. Wow. So one third of Australians haven't even spent two hours awake uh, in nature, which let me think, wow, 82% of Australians actually said, um, we would like to have a nature prescription yeah. if it's issued by a health professional. Mm. Why do you think they need that extra encouragement from a health professional? There are barriers like the access barrier or quality of green space or nature. and But we also talk about there are motivations. Shao suggests that we need to consider both motivations and barriers when we think about nature prescriptions. And if we group people looking at their motivations or access to a green space, there's one group Shao isn't particularly concerned about. 
we have people have the motivation and also, you know, they have great access. Fantastic. But then there's people who might be motivated to visit a park but don't have access. Others have good access but very little motivation and some that have neither. Given we know all the benefits, just being in nature, the health benefits, the well-being, we really should think about how we can work with the community, the policymakers, urban planners, and to um, work out the nature prescription and the town planning. As researchers like Xiao investigate the role nature can play in our well-being, it's worth reflecting on the connection First Nations Australians have with country. My name's Josh Brown. I'm a proud Warramai man from the Fossil region of New South Wales and I'm the co-founder of Deadly Ed, which is an Aboriginal education provider ensuring anyone anywhere has access to quality and authentic Aboriginal education. Josh, for you, how do you personally feel when you're in nature? It's, it's a thing that immediately connects you and grounds you back into culture straight away. I think if I'm ever having a day where it's like I don't feel like myself or I don't feel like I'm connected with culture. Yeah, I work in and with culture every day, but at times when you start to, as we are now experiencing, you start to go into this business westernised realm, Mm. combining culture with that, at times it can feel like are you actually in culture or not? So for me, nature is the most important part of that and it's the most important part of for anyone to connect with with culture. Do you have a favourite place? Uh, look, you'll find that any Aboriginal people or any First Nations people around the world will say where they're from is their favourite place mm-hmm. and that's always been the case for me and it's, it's it hasn't really been until I, you know, I move, I've moved away. Like growing up, you sort of... You know, after 18 years in the same spot, you're like, oh, just want to get out of here, you know? But <laughs> it's it's that thing of when you move away from it, you then start to really think about all the things that you really like about it. And then where you then move to, you then start to connect with like, oh, I connect with this because that's what I'm used to where I'm from, you know? So where you're from and your own mob or from your own country, that's where you always connect with first, as we always remember first. Josh is from the Tuncurry region on the mid-north coast of New South Wales. So for me, um, I'm a saltwater person, so being in the salt water is the thing that really kind of like recalibrates me. That and also just being within nature, looking around and seeing all the different native plants and knowing what I can use them for. They're the stuff that really connects me back to nature and back to culture immediately. As part of Josh's job, he teaches people of all different backgrounds how to connect with nature and culture. So when we're thinking of our connection with country, it's thinking firstly that culture isn't this, isn't isn't people, right? Um, and that's what that's the misconception that cultures of the world are the people. Well, it's actually not. The culture is the land. Mm. So how do you connect with the land around you? That is how you connect with culture. It's just that the people kind of like the middle person because look I don't know about you Rose but yeah look trees and plants don't don't necessarily speak um, <laughs> unless you've had a few too many one night and <laughs> who knows um, but essentially it's it's the people that you know um, provide 
the knowledge of how to connect with local land and culture. So really it's, it's, and that's what anyone can do. And it's not a case of like, oh, it's only Aboriginal people that can connect with local country. Like, and like when you think about it, how do you connect with the land around you? Well, that's how you're connecting with mm. it, right? It's not what someone else tells you. It's how you connect with it. Like whether it is that, oh, I like looking at this, I like feeling this, I like smelling this, I like tasting this. And really the, the, the only way to connect with country, to connect with land is through the senses, if you're not connecting through the senses and you're not really connecting with it. I saw that you do a bush tucker program as part of Deadly Ed. Could you tell us a bit about what happens during those programs and what kind of feedback you get from people? So with our, with our gardens and our bush tucker programs, that's all around how do we connect people of all ages to, to land, to our native plants, and how do we teach people about native plants and their many varying cultural uses of these plants not just where I or my staff are from, but different plants are used by all different mobs for different purposes all across Australia. So that's one element of it is how can we educate people about that side of things in terms of educating people more about culture and how native plants are actually the most critical part of culture, but they're the most critical part in terms of sustainability and introducing the different, I guess, aspects of land management and positive land management that, look, so many of our mobs have done for, you know, millennial. So it, it sort of, it starts with that, but then I guess the the more hands-on stuff that we w- really want to get across to people of all ages is knowing how to grow a plant or how to grow a garden yourself, how to start it from scratch and how to keep looking after it yourself. It'd be great that I can teach as many people as I can how to grow a ten dollar lettuce. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, versus, you know, and, and it's like if we don't know how to just to grow our own food, then that's something that we should be really taking seriously. And that's something that I want to see happen more is that our own Aboriginal communities not just know how to grow their own food, but they know how to grow bush tucker. They know how to grow the stuff that grows where they are. Because um, that knowledge, unfortunately, in many parts of Australia has been lost. It's gone. Um, and we're in this phase of, yeah, some mobs having to relearn this stuff, which, yeah, it's, it, it is. It, it's a massive shame. But mm. if we can at least provide some kind of outlet now, um, I think that's a really positive start at least. Yeah, and kind of rebuilding that connection and tapping into it. Yeah, yeah, essentially like, you know, the, the knowledge around native plants and, you know, uh, traditional, you know, land management practices. Yeah, they're happening in different parts across Australia and then there's parts where people were just kind of like, well, we don't even know where to start. Mm. Um, it's like old uncle or auntie such and such, they're, you know, they passed away a few years ago or something. So I, I think for us it's how can we make sure we're helping other mob to know how to do this stuff themselves. Thinking about the people you've done the programs with, what do you see within them in terms of their well-being as they engage in these programs? It's one of the things that when I was growing up, I thought gardening was just like the most boring thing ever and it's unfold people. <laughs> um, and like my mum always laughs about how like, you know, so into this that I am now because she always says like, oh, well, you know, in high school you just 
destroyed most plants playing cricket. <laughs> <laughs> and he's saying, oh, get over it, mum, they're just plants. <laughs> and it's and it's really interesting now. Like I see kids in primary school, I see kids in high school, I see adults, and the immediate thing is, oh, this is actually like really like therapeutic. Like oh. I feel like, you know, really good. Like I was able to just zone out and just mm. do this hands-on activity in her mindful in nature sessions, Belinda has also noticed people come away feeling peaceful. You can see it in people's faces. Uh, quite often the last place that we relax is our face. So just by noticing um, people's faces and even their shoulders, I certainly carry stress in my shoulders, their, their body has softened. Um, but even in their words and how they relate to the experience and how they relate to others in the group, uh, you can certainly see that it's had a calming effect on, on people and uh, there's a sense of quiet that this experience evokes within you. But not everyone wants to garden or meditate. This is why nature prescriptions would need to be customisable, so you actually do the activity. Because not everyone going to buy, say, do a park run at 6am on yeah. Saturday. No. They may do once, you know, and then it's not sustainable. That's part of the implementation. It needs to be customised for people to make it sustainable and with the motivation, so then they could really benefit from nature. I would say this is one of the prescriptions probably have no or very little side effect. The only thing I could imagine is you need a sun protection um, mm -hmm. before you go out so we don't get skin cancer. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I think it's very healthy. Given not everyone will have the same use of a nature space, we also need diversity in our parks. In your neighbourhood, you might have seen small parks dotted around between suburbs. These are what Xiao calls pocket parks. They're great because they provide a green space, but they often tend to serve the same purpose. If you go into this park 10 minutes, um, you know, you can walk around and you go to the other park pretty much the same. But it, the population could be quite diverse. We have children, family, ageing population, all people, you know, they are 9 to 5 or even 9 to 8 kind of walking hours. If we have those uh, pocket park within walking distance or short drive, they have different functions. That probably will help um, the local population. Some of them you can go there just to have a run, mm. but the other one maybe quite small is just good enough for people to find a bench or sit on the grass. And maybe there's another park you can actually off-leash your dog. So all that, um, it's difficult to achieve if you just have one small park and yeah. won't have all those functions. But we could potentially achieve that where a uh, few of the pocket park in the neighbourhood. And this requires the urban planners to really carefully design uh, the local community parks and to really think about who live here and listen the community's voice. It sounds like the nature prescriptions need to work in conjunction with, yeah, the urban planners and people who are looking at the demographics of the community. So it seems like something that's very multi-tiered. Absolutely. And this is what Panda, part of the Panda, I think is very special, mm. that we aim to co-design oh. with 
consumers, uh, with health professionals, and also those nature practitioners. So this is where uh, we all learn from each other. And so by the end of the day, we are able to know what we can provide to the participant, to the general population. And hopefully that will have more healthier community and built environment mm. in the very near future. Working with urban planners and government is actually something Xiao has done before. Her earlier research influenced the planning of Sydney's green cover. So I remember, well, over 10 years ago, when I first present my research on green space and health at the Royal Botanic Garden in Sydney next to um, the Opera House. We have quite a lot of policymakers or people from council, and they said, amazing, we really like your research, and which provides scientific evidence show how the green space benefits on health. Mm. So then they asked me a question, say, hi, Xiao, can you tell me how much green space we need? <laughs> um, and I was like, oh, very good question. I would like to know too. Yeah. It probably is a million dollar question and mm-hmm. I hope I could answer. And you know what? Actually, I did got you know, a million dollars of those uh, research fundings, very competitive um, funding around. And uh, after we published about 87 research just on green space and house, which there's a continuous figure come out. It's 30% or more tree canopies in our neighborhood could help us to maintain um, or improve our physical health and also good for our mental health as well, reduce depression, anxiety and even loneliness. This 30% green cover kept coming up in Xiao's research. She presented it to industry and policymakers. When they make their urban greening or a forest strategy, they um, take my uh, advice and use my research and uh, think about what they need to do. So they are actually going to aim even higher, like city of city, is 40% or wow. more, I mean, to achieve in the next 10 years, mm. um, which I think is fantastic uh, because we do need a good amount of tree canopies and green space, especially given our growing population. So if, say, today uh, we have um, 100 square of green space in our neighborhood for 500 households, Great, but give 10 years time. This oh. maybe become high-density neighborhood. Yeah. It's no longer 500 people anymore. It could be, you know, 5,000. Mm. But if we still have the same amount of green space, that means the ratio become really high, right? Yeah. Um, so this is where we should really work in uh, more and with the quality makers that creating high-quality green space and the tree canopies uh, for our urban people. When her niece would get treatment, Belinda would take her over to Kings Park. I remember this one particular day, uh, we were laying in the park and were surrounded by all these trees. And I said to her, let's imagine where the trees and let's see if we can name them and talk about their lives and, and their journey and, and what they've experienced. And so we did, we, we went on and we started talking about, you know, the trees as if we were their uh, ancestors, you oh. know, and, and their scars and all their wounds. We would talk about, you know, how they got them. And it was, it was such a beautiful experience and something that, a memory that stays with me because, you know, even for her with, I guess, 
everything that was going on, it was just a moment to, to remember. There's that remembering of where we came from and, and also just being there in the present moment, appreciating all the beauty around us. Doing the sessions as you have done for a number of years now, what's that been like for you? I always come back to my heart, you know. I, I really want to share this because, you know, we all experience stress in our lives and this is just a way, um, if, it's, if it resonates with people, this is just another way that uh, you can connect with yourself and with nature that, you know, is therapeutic. Uh, but for my own mental health, wow, the, the process in itself is therapeutic for me because, you know, I have a ritual where I will arrive at, at the walk destination um, an hour, sometimes a little bit longer, depending on where it is, prior to the walk. And I actually take that time to do a mindful walk myself and notice what's happening in nature. So the practice in itself and the sharing in itself is, uh, I find therapeutic for me. That is Belinda McCauley, founder of Mindful in Nature. You also heard from Dr. Xiao Chi Fong, Professor of Urban Health and Environment at the University of New South Wales and founding co-director of The Power Group. Thanks also to Josh Brown, co-founder of Deadly Ed. This episode was reported and produced by Rose Kerr. Our sound engineer this week was John Jacobs. I'm Sana Kadar, and that's it for All in the Mind this week. But before I go, I want to tell you about a big new podcast that's just been released by my colleagues here at the ABC. It's from some of the same folks who brought you The 11th and Trace and other big hits. They're back with a new podcast called Firebomb. It starts out with a Chinese restaurant being, you guessed it, firebombed, in the middle of the night in Perth, and it goes from there. It ends up involving secret informers, buried weapons, criminals on the run, ninjas, punks, urgent diplomatic missions, a lot. I won't tell you any more because I don't want to spoil it, but it is riveting, and it's a story everyone in Australia should know. So here is a preview of Firebomb. New episodes are coming out every Tuesday. Just a warning, this preview contains some strong language. When I was a kid, my family owned a Chinese restaurant in the suburbs of Perth in Western Australia. But in the year I turned eight, something really strange happened. One of the owners of the Man Lin restaurant was rung at about two o'clock this morning and told that his business was in flames. Our family's restaurant was firebombed in the middle of the night. I really feel very scared and frightened. This was a targeted attack. The offenders had gone there specifically to torch that particular business. We had no idea that this was just the start of a story that would span decades. The police say they can't be sure that fires are linked, but admit the coincidence is highly suspicious. The numbers started escalating that seriously targeting Chinese restaurants. The latest attack happened just after three o'clock this morning. The number of Chinese restaurants were set ablaze. Oh, it's frightening. I'm Crispian Chan. My family was targeted as part of a series of terror attacks, one of the few sustained and coordinated terrorism campaigns in Australia's history. But you've probably never heard about any of this. A taste of terrorism we thought was not possible. It now became protection of life. There was chaos in Perth, violence on the streets, they surrounded us and we just said, we're going to fucking kill you. They knew where we lived. It was a warning that they were sending to us. Perth's ninjas made themselves available on Hotline. 
Some people would say that you're actually trying to take the law into your own hands. Our role is purely to help the underdog. There were urgent diplomatic missions, buried weapons and stakeouts. The Premier flies out to Hong Kong this weekend. They were advocating a threat to democracy. He was under my skin, frothing at the mouth. They said that they were going to blow my head off if I won the election. It sounds like there is a war going on. The firearms, the gunfire is unbelievable. I want to find the people who did it. I'm going to track them down. Who's on the other side of that fence? I don't know if he's going to talk to us. That's the track, okay. What the f How does it feel for you to say sorry about your past? And I want to know if something like this could happen again today. The other day, he posted this to his account. You can't go in there and you can't slow down. They're following a myth. There are all these stones that just need to be turned and they haven't been turned. And there is a reason for that. We're still fucking around, but we're still here. We're fucking still living our lives. Coming soon, Firebomb the latest season of the ABC's Unravel podcast. Really, really horrible things can happen to good people, even in a relatively peaceful place like Perth. Find it on the ABC Listen app. Just search for the Unravel podcast. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.